0: We've been in Ephesians 1, and all of Ephesians 1 essentially is a prayer. After two introductory verses, we begin in verse 3 through 14, which is praise for all of God's blessings in Christ Jesus, and then in verses 15 through 23, we have petition, and we started that last week. And when Paul prays for the church at Ephesus, he has one central prayer, one basic prayer, and that prayer is this, that they just got to know God better. He's praying that they would have the knowledge of God, and this is not an academic or theological knowledge. This is the heart knowledge. That is, that they would know the Lord, that they would love the Lord. They'd draw close to God. When we want to know how to pray strategically, we need to look at the prayers in the Bible. And here Paul is showing us, at the heart of of our prayers for one another, for family members, for loved ones, for a small group, for church, at the heart of our prayers, Praise that our fellow brothers and sisters would know God better, pray they'd know the Lord, love the Lord. After he prays that, he elaborates with three things that are just crucial to knowing God, knowing God better and better. He prays three things, that they would know the great hope that God has for us in the future, all of the glories He has for us. Secondly, they'd know the inheritance, and that is not our inheritance, but that we are God's inheritance. Were his treasured possession, and then thirdly, and he emphasizes this, you've just got to know the power of God at work in your lives. And when he comes to the power, that third one, it's so interesting, fascinating, that in verse 19, he has a sixfold emphasis. That is not one term, not two terms, three terms, but six terms to emphasize this power. In 119, he says, and you've got to know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working energy is what it comes, our word comes from, the working of His great might, His great power. He is so emphatic. You've just got to understand God's incredibly great power. But then, if that is not enough emphasis… The the rest of the chapter, the next four verses of the chapter, he elaborates and pictures and, and, and describes more this power that we've just got to know. And so the whole context of our passage today is very simple. He is praying for fellow Christians, something absolutely vital for them, that they would understand. They would not only know God better, they would understand His hope that He has for us, our inheritance, and especially the power of God at work in our lives. And we need to know that because we've got great needs, and we need the power of God with breakthroughs in our lives. And we've got a great tendency as bent humans to depend upon our own power and resources. And Paul is underscoring the great power of God available to us, working in us. And so it is that power that we're looking at. If you would stand now, let me read these four verses, beginning in verse 20 about the power of God. Who feels all in all? This is the Word of God. Please be seated. <clears throat> in four movements, he's going to describe this power of God, this great power available to us with four keynote verbs: that God raised him, God seated him, God put all things under him, and God gave him to the church. The first one is that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's what we see at the outset of our passage. Verse 20, we see this power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Now, this is the point. The greatest example of the power of God, the most encouraging example of the power of God for us in our daily lives as we depend upon God, as we need God to break through for us, is nothing else than the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. When you are calling out to God for an impossible situation… When you're calling out to God for anything little or big, God says, remember first the resurrection of Jesus. Think first of the resurrection of Jesus. Think first of the fact that Jesus Christ was brutally executed on a Friday morning, and His body was placed lifeless in a tomb, a cold, dark tomb, and a great stone was put over it. And think how that grave couldn't hold Him. That death couldn't stop him. That God raises Jesus from the dead. I've had the opportunity to go to this tomb in Jerusalem, and for me, it is the most moving thing about going to Israel. When you go to the garden tomb, which quite likely is the actual place, and you walk into that tomb, you can kind of see a little picture of it there. You walk into that tomb, and you see a couple of places for dead bodies, and one of them, no one has ever been laid. There's no body been buried. The other one, there has been one body. And that tomb is empty. And you walk in there and you stand and you think this is where your Savior was laying and the the tomb is empty. And Jesus burst forth from the dead. What God is telling you and me is that whatever the challenges of your life are, they may seem overwhelming. They may seem so big. They may seem impossible. Maybe you've been calling out to God and at times you may be wondering, is this just too big? And God reminds you and me Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He is the God of resurrection power, and whatever the challenge is, He can do it. He can do it. Are you unemployed? He can take care of that. Do you have cancer? He can take care of that. Do you have a teenager in an incredible, scary rebellion? God is bigger than that. Whatever the challenge is, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is bigger, and He can rescue you. You know, it's interesting how all through the Old Testament, after Exodus 14, after the Red Sea and the parting of the Red Sea and the rescue of God's people out of the most powerful country in the world at the time, Pharaoh and Egypt, the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, after that, throughout the Old Testament, time after time after time, a hundred times, any reference to the, the, the rescuing power of God is to the Exodus, that the same God who rescued His people out of out of slavery in Egypt can rescue you but after the resurrection no more after the resurrection for us forever the emblem of the power of god the rescuing of god is the resurrection power of jesus and so this is what we see in the new testament church if you want to see the greatest example of the love of god then look at the cross and if you want to see the greatest example of the power of God, look at the resurrection. Those two events, Friday morning, Sunday morning, the, the love of God and the cross, the power of God on the resurrection. God is specifically reminding you and me. This past Friday night, Gail and I were babysitting. In fact, we're still babysitting. Uh, Paul and Sarah, our daughter-in-law, have been out of town, left their nine-month-old with us for a few days. And it's been great, but we're glad for the parents to come back. So, so Friday night, uh, about 8.30 or 9, uh, Ren's not a happy camper, so I've got her in the stroller. And I'm, you know, we're walking, we're making loops outside and trying to get her to sleep. And I am praying for some of the big challenges that I'm aware of that I pray for here at Woods Edge. And one of them involves uh, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, whose young adult daughter has made some choices that are so painful, so very painful for parents, overwhelming. And I begin praying for her as I do daily, and this passage leaps to mind. And though it seems impossible, I am reminded by God, okay, the one I'm calling out to is the one with all resurrection power, and He can do this. Now, Friends, this is the point of this passage in Ephesians 1. So that when you and I are calling out to God for whatever it is, and we need God to break through and do something God sized, remember, think of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ is the same power available to us. Think about that. Remember that. God tells us, whatever the situation. The second one there's four movements. Second one is God not only. Raised Jesus from the dead, but then he seated Jesus at his right hand. And you see that also in verse 20. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, here's the chronology the final week of Jesus' life, Friday morning, Jesus is crucified. Three days, or on the third day, Jewish time-figuring, reckoning, Sunday morning, He raises Jesus from the dead. Jesus uh, makes resurrection appearances for the next 40 days. And then on the Mount of Olives, recorded in Acts 1, uh, Jesus ascends into the heavens. And when He does, He is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms. Now, the right hand of the Father in the Bible, the right hand of God, is considered the place of honor and the place of authority in the universe. The right hand of the throne in heaven, that is tantamount that that He is on the Father's throne. He, along with the Father, exercises rule and authority, has all honor. And so, not surprisingly, Jesus, after the resurrection, said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's got it all. He has all authority. He has the supremacy in the universe. The resurrection proclaims this. Jesus is alive forever. The enthronement or exaltation of Jesus to the right hand proclaims this. Jesus reigns forever. He is alive forever. He reigns forever from the right hand of the Father. Why is Jesus seated If angels are always seen as standing or bowing or prostrate, why is Jesus seated? Because, very simply, He has completed His work that He came to do. John 19, 30. He's about to die on the cross, and prophetically He says, it is finished that when I die on this cross and pay for sin, my work is done. All sin has been paid for. That means that you and I, trusting Christ, we can go off duty because Christ has paid for our sin. And so, when He is raised and seated at the right hand, He is the place of rest. He is seated at the right hand of God. But Paul needs to describe that a bit more to us, this second point. And so, in verse 21, he says, He seated Him in His right hand in the heavenly places far above all ruling authority and power and dominion not just above all rule and authority, power, and dominion, but far above all rule and authority, power, and dominion. Not just far above rule and authority, but far above all rule and authority, power, and dominion. Emphatic terms. He is so far above every other power. When you read those four terms, rule and authority and power and dominion, those are common terms in the New Testament, for demonic powers. And that's what he's talking about here. For example, if you would turn in your Bible to chapter 6, verse 12, Paul is talking about the spiritual powers, and he says in verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Same kind of terms. So back in one, he is saying, think about the power of Satan. Think about all the demonic powers of hell. Jesus is far above all of those powers. And we're reminded again, church, of the New Testament perspective, that we would never ever think of God and Satan as counterparts. God has no counterpart. You've got the infinite triune God up here who is seated far above every other power in the universe, and then way down here, an infinite distance down here below, you've got the power of Satan. He is on a leash, and his, he will one day be cast forever into the pit of hell. We do not fear the power of Satan. Now we don't need to open our lives up to Satan's uh, attacks by our sin and our disobedience of God, but but as As long as we are obedient and trusting Christ, we have nothing to fear whatsoever from the enemy. And so God is reminding you that the one that you're calling out to is the absolute supreme, far above every other power in the universe. And and if that's not enough emphasis, he, he then goes on and says, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now, I take it here. And what he's doing, is just saying, and not only all the demonic powers of hell, but every power, every name, every title in the universe, good or bad of any kind, not just demonic and angelic, but nature and disease and death and whatever the power may be, Jesus Christ is far greater. He's far greater. Is Jesus Christ greater than your cancer? He is far greater than your cancer. Cancer, as it is said, is little c. Christ is big c. Is he greater than the biggest challenges in your life? He is far greater. What God is reminding you and me is that we are not talking about a philosophy. We're talking about a living relationship with the Almighty God. We are not like those who hold to a form of religion and deny its power. Can God do a miraculous transformation in your marriage? Just ask James and Maria Brown if He can. Can God deliver you from the most incredible addictions and bring transformation? Just talk to so many people. And He can. And so God would have you and me when we pray, particularly if at times we lose heart and we're not sure that uh, God can do this, Is that we remember the resurrection power and the exaltation of Jesus over all things everywhere. Remember how great is our God. How great is our God. There's two more, more briefly actually. The third one God put all things under Jesus' feet, 22a, and he, God, put all things under his Christ's feet. God not only exalted Christ far above everything else, but then He specifically took all those demonic and hostile powers, angelic and human, and places them in subjection to Christ under His feet. We're going to see that completely realized one day. Now, this, this thought has deep Old Testament roots. Some of you, like me, love Psalm 8. You know, what, what is man that you're mindful of him? Well, in 8, verse 6, He's talking about humans and the prayer is you, God, have given him, man, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now, here he's talking about human beings, that we have a a dominion, a a lordship over all of creation. And that one day all things we put under our feet. But this has its greatest realization in the God-man Jesus. All things are put under the feet of Jesus already. Or there's Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2. There we read that the Lord says to my Lord. That is, uh, that God the Father says to God the Son. He says, sit at my right hand. That's talking about our passage. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, that is, under your feet. The Lord sends forth from Zion, Jerusalem, your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father all the enemies are under His feet, He is ruling over all. The power that you are dealing with here is the power of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, no one else, none other. So when you call out to God and you need a God-sized breakthrough, remember who He is. Remember. One more movement of this, and that's in verse 22 when He says, He put all things under His feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, this fourth movement is a reminder of a couple of things. First of all, again, Jesus Christ is the head over all the universe. You know, sometimes you hear foolish people say things like, well, he was just a great religious teacher. That is so far from what the Bible says. He is so much more. He is the Lord of glory, the Almighty God. And He is head over all things everywhere in the universe. Now, the point He makes is that the Father gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. So, here's the the thought. Okay, He takes the one who is the head of the universe and specifically says and makes Him... uh, the, specifically the head of, of the church, this much smaller subset of people, his redeemed people, the people who have, who have trusted him as Savior down through the centuries, his blood-bought, much-loved, redeemed people, that he has a specific special relationship to us and so that he is our head, we are his body. Now think about the analogy that God uses here and elsewhere. This is my head right up here, and this is my body right down here. Now, we're attached pretty close up here, aren't we? You know, we're really, in fact, one thing here. I mean, we're together. We're one. And God takes this analogy, head-body, and says, this is the way my son is with his body. You're one. Uh, You are in Christ. He is in you. You are connected together. You are joined together forever. And you are that connected. You are that special to him. He is your head, and you are his body. And this is what he says about it. He says, He gave him, Christ, as head over all things, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, that's kind of convoluted. Let's, let's unpack it. So, we, the church, are the fullness of Christ. Hmm. I take it this way. It's not completely clear, but I take it this way. Most likely, he's going to talk about how Christ fills the universe, and we fill Christ. That as Christ fills the universe with His glory, He uses His church uh, as the main expression of that glory. As God fills the universe with His rule, He uses the church, us, you and I, as an expression of that rule, that He uses His church as His hands and His feet. You see this real clearly a couple of chapters later. In chapter 3, verse 10, if you've got your Bible, just look across the page. It's what he says about the church. He says, so that through the church, not buildings, but you and me, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So that the way God shows the whole universe, all the demons of hell, all the angels of heaven, His greatness and His glory is primarily in a redeemed people. He shows His grace and His grace to you and me. He shows His power and His power with you and me. All of His beauty and all of His splendors primarily seen in His redeeming His people. And so we're the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. So this Christ, who is our personal head, fills the wide universe. With his glory, with his renown, with his rule, with with all things everywhere. Because he is king of kings and he is lord of lords. So I think maybe perhaps put best by Abraham Kuyper, who was a Dutch theologian and prime minister. And he said once, he said, There is not one square inch of the universe that does not cry out, Jesus Christ is Lord. So, friends, we're calling on a Savior to rescue us. We are calling upon the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is so great. And the whole point of this passage is that when we've got great needs, remember the power of God. When you've got great challenges in your life, remember the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. When you've got overwhelming Uh, problems and, and challenges and you need God to come through, remind yourself that nothing is too hard for the Lord because He is the one who raised Jesus and enthroned Jesus and fills the universe with Jesus. And there is nothing at all that He cannot do. So I ask you this morning church, what is the biggest need in your life right now? Is God bigger than that problem? You petty because our Savior is so great. Some of you have had the opportunity perhaps to go to Versailles, this opulent palace of King Louis XIV in Paris. I mean, it's just kind of ridiculous. And King Louis XIV reigned for 72 years. Since he was from the age of 5 to the age of 77, he reigned as the absolute monarch of France had all kind of wealth and power. He was referred to as the Sun King, or Louis the Great, and all these honors. And when he died, you can imagine how the country mourned. Well, at his funeral, with all the clergy of France, assembled in the great cathedral in Paris, to symbolize the greatness of Louis XIV, they turned out, they, they snuffed all the, the torches and the lights, and just put one lone candle sitting up front on the casket of Louis XIV to symbolize that Louis XIV alone was great. Well, at a certain point in the funeral, the court preacher, a man by the name of Massillon, walks up to speak. And the first thing he does is he walks over and blows out the candle. And in the darkness, they hear the voice, Only God is great. Friends, we need to be reminded, only God is great. We think political powers are great. We think some of the corporations are great. We think some of the human and demonic powers and the forces of nature are great. Only God is great. And whatever your problem is, He's bigger. And for hereafter, whenever you are calling out to God, and it seems like the need is overwhelming, you remember this passage and the resurrection, enthroned power of Jesus Christ. Pray with me now. Why don't right now, you take that biggest challenge in your life, the most impossible situation, and you call out to God? Lord, hear these prayers. Rescue, deliver, heal, save all over the room for the glory of Jesus. Friend, if you're here, you've never trusted Christ as your own Savior, that's your biggest need for a Savior. Right now, breathe a prayer and say, Jesus, come and save me. And He will. He will. Lord, We worship you because you are worthy of all honor. We pray together in Christ's name, amen.